This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, though, we start with the cost of living in British Columbia. Here's a question for you. Which province has the highest cost of living in the entire country? Sad to report. It is British Columbia. Brand new survey ranks all the provinces by affordability. British Columbia ranks dead last. The most expensive province in the country. Lots of people struggling out there right now. Have a listen to Vanessa Malloy here as a single mom in North Van speaking to Global News about trying to stretch a budget here. Have a listen. I really have to make sure that I'm checking the sales, that I'm shopping around, that you know, and this goes back to kind of budgeting out my gas. I don't want to be going to 10 different grocery stores, but there are times where I, I am going to two or three different places to get my various groceries. And it's just because I'm comparing prices and some people might not think, well, 10 cents less for something here. What's that worth? In the end, it, it does make a difference. Yeah, lots of people are shopping around, especially with the price of food so high right now. Check this out. Another survey indicating in British Columbia, lots of people struggling, more consumers turning to credit cards and payday loans to pay for the cost of daily living. Let's talk about that now with my guest, Blair Manton. Blair is an insolvency trustee and chartered accountant, Sands and Associates. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Blair, thanks for coming on today. Oh, my pleasure to be with you today. Okay, let's talk about this new survey that you've just put out about British Columbians turning to credit cards and payday loans. What's happening here? Well, Mike, this is our 10th annual survey and we've seen some trends over time in the last 10 years and the reason why we started doing these surveys was just to shine a bit of the light on people that are going through financial difficulties because almost everyone I meet with they feel like they're alone they feel very ashamed and there's a huge stigma of you know first off admitting that you've got yourself into a financial situation uh, and then second reaching out for help so we've been doing these studies for a while to really try to raise the consciousness reduce the stigma and we've definitely seen some trends over time and the most concerning things we've seen in the last few years you know, one of them is absolutely the escalation in really high cost, last resort financing, things like payday loans. We've seen the usage of payday loans as the real primary driver of people coming in to see us uh, go from almost nothing 10 years ago, it didn't exist, to the second most common reason why people are coming in to see us after credit cards. Okay, those payday loans companies, they're, they're brutal. I don't think you should ever use those. I mean, that would be my advice, but... Because the interest rates are so high, right? Like, what do they charge you in interest rates there? Well, it, it's, it's absolutely insane. You know, there's, there's a level in the criminal code of Canada that says you can't have interest charges of more than 60% in a year, but there's an exemption there for payday loan companies because they can charge various fees and costs. Like, I've seen it when you calculate it out. It's upwards of 400 500% per year. Oh, and you're absolutely man. right that when you get into that type of an interest trap, um, it, it is a trap because you generally need another loan um, to pay that off. And then a third one. I see people with 10, even 15 different payday lenders, some of them internet-based, some of them the bricks and mortars you see in your neighborhood but it's absolutely a vicious cycle so if you're sitting there and saying the only way um, i can make ends meet is to do a payday loan unless that's a one-time thing you know it's likely you're going to find yourself trapped into a cycle yeah oh man that is brutal i can't believe that's allowed why is that legal 400 percent? what yeah, and I, I've, you know, actually asked the minister that a few years ago. She came to speak to a trustee group, and, you know, where it came down was, okay, people need a lender of last resort, and, you know, you don't want it to be organized crime where they're breaking legs rather than making collection calls. But at the end of the day, I think people need to know, um, you know, if you're going to be late on your rent, rather than getting a payday loan, you might want to have the chat with your landlord. Um, you know, if you're getting a payday loan just to pay off your credit card bills each month, there's never yeah. going to be a happy ending there because the interest is 90% of what you're paying each month, and that's going to need to get paid next month as well and now you've already bored and are paying interest on that money so it can just well, again, it can create a, a vicious cycle well when you start adding up all those service charges that you just described there i mean man i don't i think you'd probably get a better 
better deal from the mob. I, I'm not sure Tony Soprano would charge 400% on a loan. Good grief. Yeah, I, that, I, is, that is terrible. I can't speak to that, but I, I can tell you whatever debts you have, there's, there's always a way out, whether there's personal debts or debts to payday loans, even to government. You know, a lot of people feel hopeless. They owe the tax man or woman or, or they owe for student loans. You know, all of these yeah. things, there is hope. And what's shocking in the survey for us, too, is even after 10 years, 95% of people still wait. You know, they really suffer in debt, their physical health, emotional health, mental health. Everything suffers before they reach out for help. Only 5% of people reach out for help right away why is it getting as bad as it is right now in this survey you mentioned that this is your 10th annual survey and it's a it's a very bleak picture indeed i mean is it just bottom line inflation just life's getting more expensive you know, it's really a perfect storm of, of a bunch of factors I've never seen all work at once against the consumer. So absolutely, inflation is a big one, you know, cost of living, especially on the rent and housing side. You know, I've been a trustee in BC since 2007. <clears throat> I used to see regularly people, about a third of their income would go to rent and shelter. Now it's almost everybody's over 50%. So that just removes your flexibility of 50 cents of every dollar you earn is just to keep a roof over your head. Uh, but then we also came through a global pandemic and during that time, the government gave a lot of great income supports, but they're asking for a lot of that back now of people maybe who didn't understand all the rules about it. Um, and then, you know, we're really starting to see the economic impact of the pandemic. I'm having people call me every day. You know, hours are being cut. Positions are being eliminated. Um, I think we're going to be starting we're going to be seeing the financial impact of COVID-19 for years to come. In our survey, it was only 6% of people identified COVID as the main cause of their debt. Um, but I can tell you it's a far greater proportion of that that's lighting up our phones each day. I think it is the impact of COVID is putting people over the edge now, too. Okay, so your work there at Sands & Associates, you're helping people out when they're in these type of credit jams. Like, what do you recommend for people cut up their credit card. Someone told me once put your credit card in the freezer. I'm not I'm not sure how that would help that much, but just get rid of it. Well, you know, if, if the only reason why you're having financial difficulties is due to impulsive spending, then sure, putting your card into a block of ice, you got to chisel it out. Hopefully the impulse will be gone by then. Um, but I'll tell you, that's a very, very small percentage of the people that I see. And this is really eye-opening for people when they read the survey. When you, you look at, you know, advice from others or circumstances of what got them into trouble, most clients that I see, you know, putting the card in, in the freezer or cutting it up, that wouldn't have helped them at all because they're here because they lost their job or they're here because yeah. their relationship break down, broke down, or they got sick, or a child or a family member got sick. So the challenge that I find people have is nobody has an emergency fund anymore, or maybe if they ever did, I don't know. Um, but you know, if you've got a life event that happens to you, credit can fill the gap easier than anything else if you don't have the savings built up. And if your cost of living is so high, you can't even think about saving money. You know, The vast majority of folks are just one life crisis away from a financial crisis. Yeah, I guess the the path out of this is what is a consoli debt consolidation loan. You try to get the lowest interest loan you can and try to get some financial discipline going in your life, right? Well, that's where everybody starts. And that's definitely you know, a good first place to, to try is, okay, you know, go to the bank and say, if I'm paying 20, 30% on, on interest on my credit cards, you know, can we do better on a consolidation loan? You know, right. the challenge is the people that most need a consolidation loan are the people that are least likely to get approved by it um, because you need to have assets, really strong income and a credit rating. And sometimes it's just not possible, you know, even if the interest rate was lower, you know, you built up say 10 or 20 or $30,000 of debt and you're still struggling to make ends meet, you wouldn't be able to make those payments on the consolidation loan. But what a lot of people don't realize is that there are non-bankruptcy options that are available. So I'm a licensed insolvency trustee. I can help people with bankruptcy. That's only 15% of the clients that we see. For 85% of people, they do what's called a consumer proposal. And that gives you the benefits of a debt consolidation loan, but you're not right. borrowing any money, you're not paying any interest. And what you're actually repaying is what you can afford. It's usually 20, 30 cents on the dollar, something in that ballpark. So that can be a right. new lease on life, a new way of basically getting your finances under control without having to do a bankruptcy. Blair, thanks for coming on to talk about this today. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Okay. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the drug overdose crisis in our province now. Thousands of people have died in BC from illicit drug overdoses. Why is it happening? Some analysts point to the dangerous supply of illegal street drugs, many drugs laced with toxic fentanyl. This is what's killing people. What is the answer? Some experts support safe 
supply, safe supply, give addicts pharmaceutical-grade lab-tested drugs. So if they're going to do drugs anyway, give them drugs that at least won't kill them, like the drugs that are doing on the street. That is safe supply. Got Marshall Smith standing by to talk about how they're doing it differently next door in Alberta. Have a listen to Dr. Mark Tyndall here. He is a safe supply supporter, UBC researcher. He was speaking to me on an earlier show. Have a listen. It's really the um, unregulated supply out there, and people don't know what they're getting, and there's no quality control, and so people get bad, bad lots of this stuff and go down. So it is if, if we give people the right regulated dose. Um, then it is relatively safe. Okay, there is a, a major debate underway over this concept in our province. We talked about it on yesterday's show. Let's talk about it again. My guest is Marshall Smith, Chief of Staff in the Office of Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. And I've, I've known Marshall a long time. I've talked to him in the past about his own journey from drug addiction to recovery. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Marshall, thank you for coming on today. Mike, it's great to hear your voice. It's great to be uh, heard in Vancouver again. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's been it's been a long time, and thank you for coming on. And you have you have bravely shared your own personal story and journey from uh, of drug addiction when you were living in British Columbia, getting clean, getting into recovery, and now everything you've ach- achieved in in your career. Can you briefly talk about talk about that? Can you just remind the listeners, like you were on the streets of Vancouver for quite a while. I was, I, yes, I, I'm, you know, one of many British Columbians or Canadians who uh, <clears throat> succumbed to a very serious addiction problem. And, you know, in my case, that saw me sort of tumble all the way to the streets of Vancouver, where I spent about four and a half years as a homeless addict, uh, you know, on the streets down there. I was able to, uh, with the help of a couple of local uh, Vancouver police, uh, who I'm eternally grateful for, to get into treatment uh, to find recovery and, and, you know, 17 years, uh, later, uh, find myself as the chief of staff to the premier of Alberta, which is a great privilege. And these are the gifts that, uh, that recovery has brought to my life. Okay. Well, that's an amazing journey that you have shared with uh, Canadians. So let's talk a little bit about the differences in approach here on this crisis from here in British Columbia to next door in Alberta. We've got Mm -hmm. decriminalization coming up here in BC on January 31st that will kick in. It will not be criminal anymore to possess small amounts of crack cocaine, powdered cocaine, crystal meth, ecstasy, heroin, even fentanyl. You'd be able to possess small amounts of fentanyl. Of course, we've got the safe supply argument as well. Let me play another clip here for you. Marshall, get your thoughts. This is Jerry Martin. He's a Vancouver man who wants to open a store, a drug store in Vancouver to sell what what they call safe cocaine, safe heroin. Have a listen to what he says here. You know, a lot of these people, in fact, all of them, they have to take a risk every day where they go get their drugs. They're either going to get something that isn't clean or safe, or they can put themselves in a dangerous situation. For the people out there that think it's a really bad idea, you want to look at it from the user's angle and the family of that user. Okay, so I guess the argument, Marshall, is people are going to use drugs anyway. Why not give them a quote-unquote safe supply of drugs? Your thoughts? Well, I, I reject the, the, the premise of that. I, I don't think that people are going to use drugs anyway. And so we should just, you know, give up on the social contract and, and looking after each other uh, and, you know, to hell with it all. Just, uh, you know, give everybody what they want. I, I reject that. I think that our uh, government in Alberta uh, rejects that notion. The the Alberta model that's being developed here. Uh, you know, is is built on a on a different premise. It's built on one that uh, suggests that you know people have the right to recover. They have the the right and the obligation to pursue a drug free life that is uh, hallmarked by improved health and uh, sobriety. Uh, you know, positive citizenship, reengaging with family. Uh, you know, getting back into the workforce, etc. We we believe that people can do that. We. We believe that our role as a government is to support our citizens in any way that we possibly can, to be their chief cheerleader and to make sure that services are in place to do that. Now, I'll preface that by saying that provinces across the country uh, are experiencing this crisis in, in different ways. And, you know, Vancouver 
was my hometown for a long time. Uh, and I'm certainly not um, uh, blind to the fact that it, it is, for all intents and purposes, the epicenter of probably one of the most serious public health crises that we've had in our lifetime. And British Columbia is grappling with this, uh, you know, in a, in a different way than Alberta, as is Manitoba, as is Saskatchewan. Uh, so I can tell you what is working for us in Alberta. Um, and, and we share these best practices with other provinces as well. So that's the premise of what we're doing here. Oh, we're built. Oh, OK, so would it be safe to say then, Marshall, that safe supply of drugs is off the table in Alberta? That's not something you're going to do there? We're not doing safe supply in Alberta. Um, we do have, we do, of course, encourage evidence-based treatment medications like Suboxone, Methadone, Sublocate. <clears throat> These are highly effective, you know, treatments to help somebody in their pursuit of recovery. Uh, but, but simply replacing the drug supply is, uh, is not a policy of our government that we're interested in pursuing. Let me play another clip here for you from Dr. Mark Tyndall, UBC researcher. He's with the My Safe Society. He supports the safe safe supply concept. And here he is describing why he thinks it would be actually help people get control of their lives again. Here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. If you can um, interrupt the, the grind that people go through to get their illegal drugs every day, it changes their lives dramatically, and they can work on you know, housing and um, social, other social things and their health, if they don't have to get up every morning and go and search for illegal drugs. Okay. Well, Marshall, you're, you're intimately familiar with that grind yourself, as you described right. earlier when, when you were a homeless addict yourself. So does that make sense to you? Like if you can interrupt that grind of crime in, in many cases of trying to get illegal drugs and go with safe supply instead that people can stabilize? You know, uh, <clears throat> Mike, the, the problem is that most drug users are polysubstance users, which means they use multiple different types of drugs at once. And so what Dr. Tyndall is referring to is replacing highly potent fentanyl <clears throat> with a not very potent uh, pharmaceutical pill. Uh, and, you know, the nature of addiction, of course, is that, you know, people who suffer with that want the greatest high possible and so often you know what what we've seen in the literature is that people uh, who are not engaged in a clinic-based supervised program there is the opportunity for them to sell the safe supply that they're getting uh in order to use that money to get higher potency drugs so you know i i don't think the evidence uh, is is not in on uh on safe supply at this point uh, you know, we reflect very uh, seriously on these things. Uh, it wasn't too long ago uh, in Canada and the United States where we were caught in the grip of an OxyContin crisis, uh, where, you know, there were doctors uh, who thought that it was a good idea to flood the community with uh, pharmaceutical-grade opioids. I don't need to remind you that that didn't turn out uh, very well. Uh, and so one of the challenges that we have are issues of diversion, where drugs that are supplied by pharmacists to people wind up getting diverted to other people. In fact, there's really good evidence to suggest that um, if you live in a household where there is a prescription of opioids, everybody else in the household is five times more likely to develop a substance use disorder. So we need to be very careful uh, about community safety uh, and and the population at large when we are, you know, undertaking these types of initiatives. I, I, we prefer um, a, a model where, uh, you know, go governments and, and, you know, we're, we're open to all governments who want to come and see what we're doing. We're happy to share. We understand governments are in a difficult position, but we prefer a model where governments finally get around to making the significant and substantial investments that need to be made in building treatment centers, recovery centers, properly licensing them, making them uh, accessible and publicly funded. Uh, you know, that's, those are expensive. It's a big yeah. commitment. It's a lot of hard work, but, you know, we, we, there is just no easy way around this. You know, it's people who have addiction deserve healthcare. Uh, and our lack of 
focus on those types of things Canada-wide uh, has really led us to this deficit that we have of, of available resources for people. All right, welcome back. As we continue to talk about drug policy, British Columbia compared to Alberta, my guest is Marshall Smith, Chief of Staff in the Office of Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. So, Marshall, before the break, you were talking about Alberta's focus on treatment and recovery for people in in drug addiction. Are these things necessarily, though, mutually exclusive? Like, can't you have treatment and recovery at the same time? You have harm reduction measures like safe supply, like decriminalization of possession of small amounts of drugs. No. Well, look, I I think the devil is in the details, Mike, on these individual policies. I I know that you know harm reduction in our Alberta model, in our recovery oriented system of care that we're building here, we're five hundred million dollars into building a next generation system for addiction care you know under our premier's leadership it's been an incredible undertaking harm reduction certainly is part of that continuum of care um, and absolutely plays a role in that harm reduction spending in alberta is up 30 percent since this government took office but it is not our uh, singular policy Uh, we have a uh, the, the much greater portion of our policy in alberta is around focusing on getting people into treatment and recovery. We're building yeah. uh, right now 11 brand new 75 bed treatment centers capable of treating thousands and thousands of Albertans uh, into the future. That Those are really significant investments. We're transforming uh, living units in all of our provincial correctional centers into treatment units staffed by therapists Uh, We are the first jurisdiction in North America to have achieved treatment on demand through our very successful and award-winning virtual opioid dependency program, where any Albertan, any time of day, anywhere you live with no cost and no wait list can get access to uh, treatment for opioid dependency. We allow our police officers who are on the front lines with us in the battle against addiction and overdose the opportunity to get people into treatment right there. Anybody who is arrested in Alberta uh, right from the back of the police car uh, is immediately offered access to addiction treatment if if that is their wish. So I, I could go on probably on your show for a couple of hours. Well, 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 in the interest of time, Marshall, in, in the short amount of time we have left, let me just ask you, like speaking of people getting arrested in British Columbia, we're moving to decriminalization. So as of January 31st, it will no longer be a criminal offense to possess small amounts of crack cocaine, crystal meth, heroin, even fentanyl. The Alberta, I remember previous Alberta Premier Jason Kenney had sounded the alarm on this and said they were... He was worried about decriminalization of drugs next door in, in B.C. Is that still the case? Are you still concerned? Uh, we are concerned. Our government will not be pursuing uh, decriminalization of uh, of any amounts of drugs. We're taking a data-driven approach on that. We, we looked at the decedents of the people who have died in Alberta from fatal overdose. We compared those to the number of people who were in uh, correctional center or police custody in the year prior to their death. Uh, and out of the 3,700 people that died of fatal overdose since 2017, only three of them were in custody for simple possession of drugs. So uh, the vast majority of people who wind up, you know, fatally overdosing are in custody for other more serious offenses. So we don't believe that this is going to uh, be fruitful in terms of reducing uh, overdose fatality. Uh, advocates of this system suggest that by decriminalizing <clears throat> simple possession, uh, that it will destigmatize uh, addiction and people will be more free to uh, get help for uh, for their addiction. Right. However, I can I can tell you from personal experience, it's not the simple possession of drugs that causes shame. Uh, it's the other things that come along with addiction, stealing from your family, not being able to walk your children to school, uh, you know, not coming home for days on end, losing your job, 
Those are the things that cause shame and stigma and prevent people from coming forward. Most people with addiction could care less if you know that they have are in possession of a half a gram of cocaine. So I uh, will we'll wait and see. Um, uh, maybe British Columbia is going to be able to uh, to do this in a way that that, um, you know, has an effect on on overdose. And I certainly want to leave that door open and and, yeah. and I'm cheerleading my colleagues in, in B.C. I, I hope that it's effective, but uh, you'll color us skeptical at this point. Okay. We, as you said, we could go on for a long time on this very important topic. I'd love to have you back on. Thank you very much for your time today. Good luck, Mike. Take care. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, let's talk about your BC property assessments now arriving in mailboxes across British Columbia this month. It is the annual notice of property values by BC assessment, the value of your home, used to calculate your local property taxes. Got Paul Sullivan standing by to discuss. Wait a minute here now, because I'm hearing a lot of these assessments are up. Assessments increasing. I thought some of the prices of homes were going down in many parts of the province. Why are your property assessment going up? Have a listen to Realtor Steve Soretsky here. It's not uncommon to see a, a suburban house in the in the valley or in the in the suburbs down, you know, twenty percent, twenty five percent in some cases. Uh, so, if values have gone down that much, how come the property assessments are going up? All right, let's discuss all this with Paul Sullivan now. Paul is a property agent and partner in Ryan ULC. It's a global tax consulting and software firm, and I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Paul, thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for doing this. Can you answer that question? Why are property assessments going up if we're told that property values are supposedly going down in many parts of the province right now? Yeah, well, I mean, the valuation date for the 2023 assessment rule for taxes in 2023 is July 1st, 2022. And in many marketplaces, yeah. that value at July 1st is, is, you know, kind of stable relative to the past. Um, relative to today's market, where we're starting to see some pretty steep and swift declines. The, the interesting thing also, though, is there's a, there, there are very few sales in and around July 1st. So there, you always get this transition period where you go from a strong market to a declining market, and you have that point of denial, which I'm telling you is right around July 1st, where Sellers don't really want to sell for less. Buyers want to wait because they think values are going down. And that's the market that we're in. So it's going to be a challenging year on appeals. Okay. Yeah, you can appeal your assessment. And I want to get into that with you, Paul. So for people who are seeing their assessments drop through their mailbox right now and they see the assessment on their property has typically gone up, what does that mean? Does that mean you're paying higher property taxes as a result? Well, that's a really good question. So your value change does not directly relate to your property tax change. In Vancouver, the average home went up 4%. If my property went up 4%, then I'm only going to experience the municipal budget change. If I w if my value went up 10%, I'm going to get a 6% property tax increase plus the 5% budget change. So I'm 11. So when your value exceeds the average change, then you bear a higher burden of property taxes because of that. Right. Now, this is where we get into concerns around, did BC assessment get this right? Can I appeal my assessment? What if I think the assessed value of my home is, is too high and I'm going to get dinged for higher taxes as a result? You can appeal it, correct? 100%. So in British Columbia, people need to appreciate you get the lesser of market value or equity. Market value is what my property would sell for at July 1st. Equity is a comparison of my assessment to my neighbors. Am I assessed fairly? 
And so you need to test your assessment on both fronts to determine whether you have grounds for appeal. Um, you know, I believe that homeowners can do this themselves. As a property tax agent, I look after complex commercial properties. But homeowners, they should call BC Assessment. Ask BC Assessment to prove to them that their value is fair and equitable. And if they don't do that, then they should go online and file an appeal. What would be some of the circumstances where someone might feel that the assessment is unfair? Maybe it's what their their home is older, has not received any upgrades or something? Yeah, and, you know, I need a new roof and and, and my my, my operating systems, my plumbing, my electrical, I have, you know, deficiencies. And, you know, I I just got a high-rise built in my backyard. And, you know, the interesting thing that homeowners need to really understand in in our marketplace is Section 19.8 of the Assessment Act, where homeowners, where it's their principal residence of 10 years, can be protected from redevelopment value. And Mike, this is the issue that we talk about with small business. They get valued as redevelopment and have that unoccupied, unused density above that they're assessed for. Homeowners protected from that. Very interesting. Speaking to Paul Sullivan about the BC assessments uh, coming out right now is it is it easy you touched on this briefly but for people who are thinking about well maybe i should appeal this assessment there, there's a deadline right what is the deadline to appeal yeah 100 percent. you missed the january 31st appeal deadline you are out of luck you have oh. no ground to change your value if you miss that appeal deadline it's easy to file an appeal online now be careful though if you file an appeal and your value is low or you're in the wrong class bc assessment will change that on you and you might cause yourself an increase in taxes. So do not blindly appeal. Do your homework first. Oh, no, this could backfire on you. You could end up paying more. Yeah, you bet yeah. you can. Okay. And, uh, it happens all the time. Okay, be careful about it. So yet you still have two, you have two weeks to appeal. The deadline's two weeks from today. That's correct. And, and you have a chance to get in, call BC Assessment, ask them for their evidence to support that value. And, and also know this, this is not a, a contest about how much property taxes I'm paying. This is about the value of the property. And a lot of homeowners get passionate about their taxes. This isn't the venue to fight about taxes. This is about value only. Okay, this applies to detached homes, condos too, right? If you own a condo, you're getting an assessment, right? Absolutely. Each Stratowat, every every single legal, legal title in British Columbia receives an assessment notice. And July, January 31st is your deadline to file an appeal. What about commercial property? I know you do a lot of work in that area. Do they get assessed as well? Yeah, they do. And commercial property taxpayers um, have the right to file an appeal whether you are an owner of that property or whether you're a tenant. Provincial law requires that landlords provide the assessment notice to the tenants, and tenants should be aware of their values and and consider whether they want to appeal as well. As a property tax agent, I represent both tenants and owners in filing appeals because they are the stakeholders in paying the property tax. Very interesting. What is it typically like to go through one of these appeals? Did the BC assessment put up a big legal team to fight back? Um, on a home, I wouldn't say they put up a, a legal team, but they certainly put up a big defense. So uh, when you file an appeal, you can expect a, a reasonably formal process. You need to prepare evidence to go into a review panel hearing and present that evidence to a three-party tribunal to support what you're saying about the value of your property. If you go into a tribunal with zero evidence, be assured the assessor will be there with evidence and you will lose. So, yeah. Prepare yourself. The information is available on BC Assessment's website to do your research, present a case, and whether it's on equity, meaning your comparable neighbor's assessments, or market value, bring your case forward and you might just get lucky. And, and how do you, <laughs> you hope you get lucky, that's for sure. How do you check your neighbor's assessment? You go online, right? Yeah, eval UBC, uh, just Google BC assessment. It is a very good tool for homeowners. It, you type in your address, it brings up a map. You click on your property, it'll tell you your assessment. You click on the property next door, it'll tell you your neighbor's assessment. You rummage around the whole neighborhood and you figure out whether I'm equitably assessed. And then you ask for the sales and see whether you can support a, an appeal based on, on market value as well. 
Very interesting. Okay, I had a caller on the show earlier point out, look, there's also an option to defer your property taxes. I think a lot of people are choosing to do this now. What age, You have to be 55, is that correct, Paul, to defer your property taxes? No, you need to be a homeowner, and there's two broad categories. People are always thinking this is about age. It's not. You can also defer paying your property taxes if you have dependents who you're paying to go through school and university oh. and college. So people need to be, be educate themselves on those different categories. This is not all about senior citizens. And it's amazing to me that in the past five years, we've gone from about 40,000 homeowners deferring their property taxes to 75,000 homeowners. The value of this deferred taxes has gone from $800 million to $1.6 billion. Homeowners have put themselves $1.6 billion into debt over property taxes. So the joy of owning a home comes with debt. And whether that's mortgage debt or deferring your property taxes, it's not the, the easy street that a lot of people make it out to be. Okay, so when you explain how this works, when you defer your property tax, it does it doesn't mean you never have to pay property tax. It means that the properties the property taxes are deferred until the home is sold. Is that right? That's correct. So it's yeah. registered on title, and it, it, it resides on title until such time the property is sold. It's a first charge that gets paid out uh, as part of the sales transaction. And it's not available to everybody because if you have your property fully leveraged with a mortgage, which a lot of people do, the government won't stand behind that and register their charge on top. So you, you have to be a certain level of debt free uh, and then you have to qualify under one of the categories such as kids in school or senior citizens. Um, yeah, so you're basically just carrying debt because you can't afford yeah. your tax. Right. Okay. That's some, something to remember. Yeah. Oh, there's interest charge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you pay that annually? Uh, it, it, it accumulates on top. Oh, it accumulates and, and, and is due when you pay the, when the property sold? That's correct. I got it. Okay, yeah. All right. Talking about appealing a home assessment, how to defer your property taxes. My guest, Paul Sullivan, Ryan ULC. That's a global tax consulting firm. Let's go to your calls. We have lots of them here. Stuart, New West. Hi, Stuart. Go ahead. Oh, hi there. Um, I've talked to some homeowners in the past that, that didn't appeal or, or were successful on their appeal, but the reduction in value was just applied basically for one year. And then the next assessment year, it, it just kind of went back up to where it had been previously. Can you explain if that's the case in the residential and commercial world, it's applied just for the one year or multi years? Good question, Paul. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is a one-year deal because the valuation date is July 1st each year. So it's going to be a re-establishing of that market value on July 1st. Now, if you come up with an, an issue like, hey, I've got a triangular lot and my property's worth less than my neighbor's, that issue should stick. But otherwise, it's an annual process. Do some people end up appealing every year? 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it comes an annual ritual. Let's go to Jim on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Jim. Go ahead. Hi. Very quickly, I appealed and I won. I didn't get much, but um, when I read the appeal, it said that I had a fully finished basement, which was wrong, and I had a full bathroom downstairs, which was wrong. And I filed an appeal, heard nothing, and then about three days before I was supposed to go to the hearing, I started getting panicky calls from guys who were saying, what are you doing this? Say, what's going on? And I said, this is wrong. And they said... We assumed that given the, the age of your house, you had a finished basement. We assumed that you had a full bathroom. So let me tell you, this is not accurate. Okay, Paul, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, for sure. Online with BC Assessments website, you can check your square footage. You can check your number of bedrooms, bathrooms, just types of information. And if it's wrong, there you go. You've got an easy avenue to appeal. So th that's the low-hanging fruit. Let's go to Rick. In Delta, hi Rick. Go ahead. Uh, well, first a question and a couple comments after. Well, if you defer your taxes, those charges are registered then deregistered. Who I, I take it the homeowner pays for those fees. Paul, uh, there is an application fee associated with that. Yes. 
But what about the legal fees of having it registered and then deregistered? Well, yeah, I guess that is part of your conveyancy process, so it's going to cost you a few dollars as well. And, uh, you know, th- this is big money. People have $1.6 billion in debt to the government registered yeah. against their house. So The other question I have is, or comment I have is, these assessments are so far out of whack, it's, it's a joke. And the assumption, I'm beginning to be a, a, a conspiracy guy, for God's sakes. They've had these guys on from BC Assessment in the newspapers on NW. Uh, don't be alarmed, your property's worth less than it was July 1st. Well, July 2nd, things didn't change. The real estate market was changing in March. There hmm. were, prior to the assessment, there had been three... Uh, interest rate increases in, in 2022. They're out of their minds. And I would encourage people, if you have a have a concern about it, I mean, a neighbor of mine uh, disputed theirs last year, brought mm. it down 80 grand just wow. on the land assessment, just okay. the land. And we all have the same size lots. Thank you. I called BC Assessment, and I said, I want her assessment on my land. And they <laughs> said, nope. She disputed it, and you didn't. And I said, well, your your mission statement says, you know, fair and consistent assessments. Well, our lots aren't just the same. They're exactly the same. Okay, Rick, thank you for sharing all that. That's very interesting. Paul, we just got like 30 seconds left here. What do you think of that? Yeah, well, I mean, I can tell you, I just looked at the multifamily market yesterday. 80% of the sales in 2022 occurred prior to July 1st, 20% thereafter. We have a a real loss of sales in and around July. That's why this is going to be a challenge. We need to, you have to go market by market. Every market behaves differently, you know, high-end, low-end, condo, and and, and know what's available to you at July 1st. Paul, how can people reach you if they want some help from you? Uh, Just Google me, ryan.com, Paul Sullivan, property tax agent, and happy to help you out. I don't work for homeowners in the the low-end range, but... uh, you know, in the upper value where there's a lot of money at stake, where we'd be happy to help you out. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. All right. Let's talk about all the red tape and the bureaucracy and the costly delays in the home building sector now. I talk to people all the time in the construction business, the development sector, and they all say the same thing. It's a bureaucratic nightmare often trying to work with different levels of government just to get a home built. We're in a housing crisis here. We need more homes. We need to get these permits and approvals done a lot more quickly. You often hear a lot of complaints about municipal government, municipal approvals there. Well, you've got a provincial government here saying they're trying to speed that up. Even some suggestions they might step in and force municipalities to start these approvals quicker. Let's get some more homes built in this province. What about the provincial permitting? Yeah, they've got to have their permits too. And that can be a nightmare as well. The B.C. government is saying that they are going to try and fix this now, uh, reduce those delays, get more housing built more quickly. I got Carmina Tupa standing by to discuss this here. Have a listen to Premier David Eby on this yesterday and announcing that they're going to streamline the provincial permits for new housing here. Have a listen. We will be creating a one-stop shop for provincial permitting to speed up approvals for new homes. This single window will streamline this process for permits, eliminating the need for multiple applications across multiple ministries. Okay, sounds good. Will it work? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Carmina Tupa. Carmina is the Director of Policy and Government Relations at the Canadian Home Builders Association in BC. Very pleased to welcome Carmina to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you for having me. You bet. Thanks for doing it. So let's talk a little bit about what what this system has been like up to now. Is there a lot of uh, delays? Like when you talk to your people, what are they telling you about this provincial system? Is it complicated, delays? Anything related to home building is complicated and multi-layered, and the province does have a role in that system. Um, if you are seeking permits from different ministries, it can be quite um, redundant where you have to reach out to different ministries, follow up with different staff, and um, 
it has been a ongoing issue for the past few years. And while some efforts have been made to address it, um, I think more bold and meaningful action like the one that the province introduced yesterday does have the potential to address this. Okay. Okay. So when you're a developer, you're trying to get a project built here, you're dealing with multiple different provincial ministries, different bureaucracies, mm-hmm. man, oh man. So what happens there? You've got You've got like just delay, like how, what causes the delays? Um, There could be a few reasons for the delays. Um, As of late, a lot of what I'm hearing is, you know, staff uh, at the ministry level could just be over inundated. Um, They have a lot to deal with and there's a lot to review. Sometimes it's related to unclear requirements, uh, slow commenting. So sometimes you you submit your report, your application, uh, which, by the way, is usually done by a consultant or a qualified professional. And um, the ministry takes time to review it and give their comments back. And you're sort of in this back and forth process of receiving comments and trying to respond to those comments. And then more comments come back or maybe you're being asked for additional information. Um, And sometimes you're also working through the municipality. So the local municipality, so you might be waiting, uh, the local municipality might be waiting for the province and, and, and vice versa, you might be waiting for the province for clarity. Um, so there, it's, it could be staffing, it could be just unclear um, requirements that you keep going back and forth on, um, or there could be conflicting information on, on what the position is and what is required. Yeah. Right. I'm just looking down the list, uh, some of the provincial permitting processes that you have to go through there, transportation approvals, road rezonings, contaminated mm-hmm. sites, heritage inspections, water licenses. Like you can see how this gets gets complicated. How long are the delays right now? How long can it take to get everything done? Um, depending on the nature of the project, it can be as long as two years. Uh, sometimes oh. the members have reported that it takes even a year to get a simple comment back and to hear what the status is of a project. Um, and so that, that is only one portion of the, the entire approval process of a project. So um, oh. stuff with a, a provincial commenting process is quite long. Oh my goodness, two years. Oh wow. So so you heard in that clip there that the premier is saying, well, we're going to streamline this now. It'll be one-stop shopping now, and so it's going to be better. Do you have any uh any confidence that this is going to improve it? Well, it does sound very promising and we like the idea of there being a dedicated team that will work across ministries to make sure things are being pushed along and to make sure that uh, a priority is placed on projects that are contributing to housing supply. And I think that is sort of the most important piece right now because when we are hearing from members that they're not getting response, if there is someone available at the province that is facilitating uh, the, the processing, um, maybe that is the potential for them to qu- sort of quarterback these uh, applications if they are going to be stuck. Speaking to Carmina Tupa, Canadian Home Builders Association, the B.C. government saying they're trying to streamline and speed up the permitting process here, get homes built more quickly like i love the sound of it i mean obviously it's it sounds good that mm-hmm. they want to do this what did did they put out any timelines on this announcement did they say okay it, it's taking these permits like two years sometimes now now it'll be maybe you know six months i mean did they put any deliverables on there right there haven't been any discussions on what timelines we would be working towards and that is certainly something that our association has been advocating for at a local level and we would love to see it at a provincial level as well our industry works off of predictability and certainty so if there are timelines that they can operate off of we would love to work towards that so having some kind of post is important but uh, there are a lot of details that do still need to be ironed out and it's not clear what the implementation of this with a whole housing task force, action task force being implemented, there probably will be some time needed to hire that new team on. So it's to be seen what the implementation of this looks like, but we're ready to to discuss this with the government to make sure it's effective. Oh yeah, I'm sure you are. I know know that your organization has been pushing for this for a long time, so at least you're seeing some promises of action here. I do find it frustrating, though, sometimes. A lot of these announcements 
they sound great, but then when you kind of dig down and say, well, what are you actually promising to deliver here? How how quickly will these permits get approved? Then that's kind mm-hmm. of the, the missing piece. Now, let me play another clip here for you, Carmina, for your thoughts. So this is BC's housing minister, Ravi Kalon, and you'll hear him talk about some of the issues you just mentioned, how we can pr- approve this or get these approvals done quicker. And also, you know, the province is one thing. Municipalities, man, oh, man, trying to get some permits at City Hall, that's uh, another another barrier to getting these homes built. Here's what Ravi Kalon has to say, and then I'll get your thoughts. I think we can come to a place in the very near future where somebody applying for a building permit knows upfront what is required of them, knows upfront how much it will cost, and knows upfront how much time it will take to get that approval done. Okay, that sounds pretty simple. You know, you, you wonder why it's not that way already, but can you talk a little bit about municipal approvals? Because that's a big problem too, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, there has been a lot of focus and attention on municipal approval timelines. And last year, we actually undertook a study with Altus Group Consulting to create a benchmarking report on what are the average timelines that we're seeing in 13 different municipalities across the province. And on average, it takes 13 to 14 months to get a development permit uh, or a rezoning application through the system, and sometimes over 20 months for a subdivision application. And in our discussions with the municipalities that were studied, a lot of it has to do with the back and forth that happens on, in the commenting process. And I think that does sort of speak to Minister Callan's um, suggestions that, you know, if we know what we are needed to provide upfront and there's clarity, then that means staff aren't coming back to us asking more questions, that they're able to process the application more quickly. Okay, when you talk about the comp, the commenting process there, does that mean you like public the the public gets a chance to have a say in hearings, that kind of thing? Um, not necessarily. The commenting okay. process on the application from the staff at the municipalities. Okay. I mean, we we do agree that there is also the public process where the public gets involved and gives their feedback. And I know that the province introduced uh, Bill Twenty Six that gives. Um, the opportunity for municipalities to weigh that if your application is already within conformity with everything that the municipalities already planned for. Um, so you yeah. can kind of remove that redundant step because that that plan has already been vetted through community plans and the, the residents of that area. Last question for you, Carmina. When we talk about these delays at all these various levels of government, does that, how much does that cost? I mean, that's got to increase the cost of housing, does it not? Absolutely. And it depends on the size of the project and the nature of the builder and just what their business model is. But, you know, I, and I have an example of one project that's a single family home development that experienced an eight month delay with, for example, the Ministry of Transportation. And it resulted in interest, interest charges on a $20 million land carry. And so that was an additional cost of approximately $500,000 to builder. And that ultimately gets passed on to the homeowner or the purchase price later on. Um, so the carrying costs are significant when there are delays. And not to mention, if you're going back and forth on a report from a consultant, that all of that time and all that comes from these professionals uh, to cost as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, they're certainly talking about fixing it. We'll see what happens. Karina, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.